Our series in Habakkuk is not divorced from who we are as a church. We as a church desire to worship God for who he is. We as a church desire to grow in his word, in understanding and in action. We desire to serve him the way he has designed us to be. We desire to be disciples and disciple makers. And in the book of Habakkuk, we don't get a lot of positives on how to do that. We do sure get a lot of warnings. And that's true in today's passage as well. As a devoted follower of God, Habakkuk was sensitive to the reality of the, the people around him, of God's people around him. And I keep, I keep calling them God's people for a reason, that we would understand that we're not talking about uh, that, a national sense, although he was talking about his nation, because then we would very easily apply this to us looking out on the sinful United States. That's not what he's doing. He's looking out on the sinfulness of God's people. So if we're going to make application, we're going to make application by looking at the church. And all of a sudden, that becomes uh, more clearer as to why this is so important to God. It's not that a bunch of unbelievers are acting like unbelievers. Well, that's what unbelievers do. This is about God's people acting in a sinful way and God bringing about a disciplinary action to straighten them out. Habakkuk was a disciple, a devoted follower of God. We, as believers in Christ, are disciples. Are we, like Habakkuk, recognizing sin, whether it's in our own lives or in others? Are we growing in our knowledge and obedience to God? In today's passage, uh, God responds to Habakkuk and and tries to implant in Habakkuk a sense of urgency. It's possible that this sense of urgency is one of the most lacking elements even in the church today. That we don't recognize that the warnings of God, the admonitions of God, the message of God is important and important now that we deal with it right away. So I'll show you what I mean. Follow along with me if you would. Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. Remember in verse 1, Habakkuk says, I'm going to wait for God's answer. In verse 2 we see it. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Let's pray. Father, use your word in our lives today. Keep the distractions away from us. Help me to speak clearly what you desire me to say. Help us to hear 
from your spirit through your word. Not just so that we might know something new, that we might live in a new way. So Father, we give this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The the book of Habakkuk starts out with Habakkuk being in a fog. He doesn't really understand what's going on other than he can see that there's a lot of sin in, in and amongst God's people and the law doesn't seem to be able to to do anything. There's no justice. In fact, he declares that God must be ignoring the sin of his people. In saying that the law was powerless, which of course it wasn't, it could never be. Could the law of God be powerless? But in declaring it so, uh, Habakkuk uh, knew that that he he couldn't see how God was was working. He knew that God must be. He knew that God had the power to. He knew that God's word is powerful, that God is all-powerful, but he couldn't trace God's hand at that moment, so he was in a fog. In last week's passage, Habakkuk reinforced his own understanding of who God is, that he's eternal, that he's powerful, that he's holy, that God is good even when it appears that he is not acting. And in the rest of the chapter, we saw how the Chaldeans are just so evil. Remember, God has specifically stated that he, Jehovah God, is raising up the Chaldeans in order to be uh, that disciplinary measure against the Jewish people. Uh, and so uh, he is... We've, we've gone through, through all this. Habakkuk is waiting for God to respond again. Today is his response. And his response has a stark warning and then contrasts it with the life of the righteous. So there's this really, really bright spot in the middle of one verse and not so much anywhere else. So we'll, we'll handle that when we get there. But our big idea this morning is God will do what it takes to purify his people. He will. He will do what it takes to purify his people. We, as God's people, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have put your faith and hope in him, you trust Jesus' completed work for your salvation. You don't trust your own works or your church membership or your heritage or anything like that. You trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. You are God's person. That doesn't mean you always act like it. It doesn't mean I always act like it. God will do what it takes to purify us so that our actions conform to who we are in Christ. So look at the passage with me. Verse 2, we see the mercy of God. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. I've boiled that one verse down to the word mercy. Word's not in there. But the concept is God is giving people a chance to repent. He didn't have to. He didn't have to give them a warning that the Chaldeans were coming, that this empire that we know of as the Babylonian Empire was was growing in strength, that they were this evil people that were going to come and take the nation of Judah, and they wouldn't really recover from that. He didn't have to warn them, but he is. That shows his mercy. We see 
a three-step understanding of how God's word should always be viewed. Not just this one warning, but how we should see the entire word of God. Uh, This three-step understanding. The first part is that God's word is written. He tells Habakkuk, write the vision. God did not hand Habakkuk a piece of papyrus with the message written on it or a piece of paper or even an inscribed stone. He didn't hand him or send him anything. Today he would have used a text message. He didn't hand him the message. He gave it to him in a vision. Habakkuk was the one that had to write it down. He had to write it down because it was not just for him. The Bible is written because written things last. Written things don't change. Uh, have you ever played the little game of telephone? I don't know, do kids play that anymore? It's fun how the message can get construed. If you, if you don't know what it is, you get everybody in a line and someone whispers a message in one person's ear and then that person whispers it into the next person's ear and then you see how has that message changed by the end. If you were like me, you might intentionally change it just to be funny. But uh, the idea is that because we're whispering, people don't hear it quite right. And because it's being told orally, maybe someone remembered it wrong. If it was a complex message, if you didn't say it quite right, well, then the next person's going to hear it wrong. And then the message changes over time. A written message doesn't. We are blessed in our day to have the word of God available for us in the English translation that we can understand. And it's been confirmed for us even as recently as the 1970s as they found the Dead Sea Scrolls and could find and, and found even older manuscripts than what they had had access to before and confirmed that, yes, indeed, we have a reliable translation of the Word of God. God communicated to Habakkuk in a vision, but Habakkuk had to write it. We have the written Word of God And we encourage you to read it yourself. Don't take my word for what the word of God says. Don't trust your ABF leader or your Sunday school teacher. Go to the word of God yourself. Read it. Dig. See how whatever whatever words are there, how those words fit together into sentences and paragraphs and chapters. See how the, the, the passage you're looking at fits into the entire word of God because none of it is isolated none of it is individual that's why we can as the church can look at the letter of Habakkuk the prophecy of Habakkuk and apply it to us today is because it's part of God's word it is it is for us God's communication to his people was always to be in written form because it was for his people it was for them to know which brings me to my second point there it was to be written Secondly, we see it's to be available. He didn't just tell Habakkuk to write this warning, but to inscribe it on tablets. He didn't mean a tablet like this. Inscribe it on tablets. There are two possible meanings for what he meant. He could have meant engrave it into stone, or he could have meant, uh, that, that word for tablet could have meant uh, like a bulletin board a place that is a a public posting. Uh, Regardless of of which understanding is correct, both do the same thing. Stone engravings last. They last a very, very long time. So this message would be able to be read for a long time. And it needed to be visible. Uh, Think 
Think Martin Luther as he took his 95 points of contention against the Catholic Church, how they were acting contrary to the Word of God, and he posted those 95 theses on the chapel church door. Uh, He posted it there because that's where people would post things that they wanted other people to read. That's the idea we're getting from this passage uh, in Habakkuk. He said, make sure people know this message, so write it out. Make it available to them. It must be written, and it must be public. It must be available. Thirdly, in verse 2, we also see that God's word is actionable. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets. Why? So the one who reads it can run. So he can take that message and respond to it. In other words, Habakkuk was to understand that a dispatch arcane precludes execution. Any of you get that? A dispatch. Tom got it. He's snarking at me. A message that is unclear prevents people from acting. A dispatch arcane precludes execution. Habakkuk understood that. He understood that he could not make this unclear. He couldn't use highfalutin words. In fact, this is the only time I've ever used a thesaurus trying to find a word to make a message more unclear as an illustration. A message that is unclear is unactionable. God's word is to be clear because it is to be acted upon. The harder it is to understand the message, the harder it is to obey. It's why I don't preach from the Hebrew or the Greek or the Aramaic or even the Latin as the Catholic Church did for many centuries requiring that the word of God only be used and taught in Latin that only the priests and highly educated people knew. What a loss to the church to have the Bible removed from their capacity because the average person in the pews did not know Latin. So what that it's a beautiful language? If you don't understand it, it's not going to help you. And that's his point right here. Make it plain so the one who reads it can run. God's word is written, available, and actionable, which means God is showing mercy. If he would have put this message in some language that the people around Habakkuk could not read, if he would have just taken modern English, which wasn't invented yet, and wrote the message in that language for the ancient Hebrew people to read, they would not be able to understand it. They would not be able to turn from their sin. They would not be duly warned. God says, no, make it plain. In verse 2, we see the mercy of God. Verse 3, we see the patience of God. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God's wrath is coming. And yet he is so patient. Aren't you glad? He warned Noah, I'm going to destroy the whole earth. Go build yourself a boat. And he gave him over a century to do it because he's patient. 
that whole time, Noah proclaiming what God was going to do, inviting people to believe God and enter the ark with them, and no one but his family did. God was patient. God is warning Judah through Habakkuk so that they might act upon this warning. And God will fulfill this. It's going to take, uh, he doesn't tell Habakkuk when it's going to happen. It might, be, it might not be for a week or a month or a year, but it will come. It was actually many years before the Chaldeans invaded Judah. God is patient, yes, but God is never late. How do we apply that to ourselves? Are you hiding some sin from others? You know you're not hiding it from God, right? The longer you go hiding your sin, the easier it seems. And on top of that, the longer you hide your sin, the more you get lulled into thinking that, well, God must be okay with it. He's not stopping me. I remind you of Numbers 32, 23. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Every time we sin, it is a sin against God personally. We think, oh, no one's getting hurt. It's not impacting someone else. It doesn't matter. It's a sin against God personally. And be sure your sin will find you out. It seems we forget that God is patient. That even though he hasn't brought about consequences yet, that perhaps he won't know he's patient. He's giving you opportunity to turn from your sin. We also forget that he is pure and that he demands of us that same Purity. He gives us all this time to obey, to confess and repent, to believe that our actions and our intentions are incongruent with God's character, that, we're con- that we are acting contrary to God, and he's given us opportunity to turn around. But his patience is not forever. As I pondered that phrase this week, I put it in my notes, I thought, man, Our God's eternal. He's eternal in might. He's eternal in his knowledge. He is everywhere present. the, the, The modifier eternal fits to so many characteristics of God. But not when it comes to his patience. His patience has an end point. When he will say, enough. And he will do what it takes to purify his people. Verse 4, we see the purpose of God. We're going to skip the first part of the verse for the moment. Look at the last part. But the righteous shall live by his faith. God's purpose in warning the nation of Judah is that they would live by faith. So here in verses 4 and 5, the parts that I've skipped... God is describing the Babylonians. And in the middle of this description, he says, but the righteous shall live by faith. You, my people, should not be characterized like the the Chaldeans. You live by faith. 
God's purpose in disciplining his own people was always to draw them back to himself. What does it mean to live by faith? Faith is a state of being of our soul and heart and mind. When we in our being and who we are believe the message of God and that belief produces actions in us, that is living by faith. These actions are important. It's important to obey God. But more important than our actions is our heart. For someone could sit here today and sing songs with our voice, and we had some great songs to sing today. Sing some theologically rich songs. We could sit here and listen with our ears, even taking notes with your hands. These are all actions of the body. But if we're doing so without a heart of faith, all of these actions are meaningless. You can even pray with your lips, declaring, Jesus is Lord. Without faith, those words are meaningless. Actually, Scripture tells us that one who doesn't have faith can't, won't say those words. They can physically mouth the words, but they, they just won't. Matthew 7, and 23, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? What a great action to do. Proclaim the word of God. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? They were helping people. Do many mighty works in your name. What's Jesus' response? You know it. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They did the actions, but they didn't have faith. They didn't trust Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved, what? Through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There's pride in thinking that I've earned my position with God. God says, no, you haven't. To live by faith is to take God at his word at all times. When life is hard, the person of faith will trust that God is in control. Perhaps you think life is easy and you're having struggles in trusting God because life is easy. Just read the news. There is so much trouble and strife. Not only in places in the world where you'd expect it, look at Canada. Look at our own nation. Read, go ahead, read the news. Let the bad news prompts you to trust God more. Living by faith means that we will trust him, that he is in control even when life is hard. Living by faith also means that we will turn down pleasures of the world that are contrary to God's character. Trusting God, living by faith means saying no to certain pleasures of the world that the world offers us day in and day out. 
but they're against God's character. So even though our flesh may desire them, we reject them because we live by faith. Faith keeps us from despair while we struggle, and faith keeps us from indulging in sin when we are tempted. And so much more. Talk more about what it means to live by faith this evening. But to continue, uh, we looked at the second part of verse 4. Now let's take the rest of verses 4 and 5 together. Behold, his soul is puffed up. Talking about the enemy that is coming. His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Verse 5, moreover, wine is a traitor and an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. That's the grave. Is the grave ever satisfied? Have you ever seen a cemetery downsize? He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. The enemy, in this verse, the enemy, or these verses, the enemy is egotistical, unprincipled, unrestrained, relentlessly arrogant, and insatiably greedy. Let's take each one of those for a moment. He is egotistical. The verse says he's puffed up. He's proud. Look what I've done. It is the height of arrogance to believe that anything that we have accomplished was done without God. But for a godless nation, of course they are puffed up. They've seen success. But who's been giving them this success? Even this, this success that is the destruction of many nations. God says, I'm doing that through them. I'm raising them up. They don't see that. They're puffed up, egotistical. They are unprincipled. The verse says that they are not upright. The enemy determines his own view of what is right or wrong. It's easy for us to see that playing out in the world today around the world, in our own nation, oftentimes in our own backyard, where people determine what they believe is right, regardless of what the maker may have said is actually right. To be honest, this happens in churches as well. Why do you think there are so many varieties of churches who all claim to uh, believe in Jesus Christ, all claim to be Christian, uh, but the outcome is very different. This is why the, the Bible, understood in just a normal sense, is our sole source of doctrine and practice. Because if we are going to just make it up on our own, well, then who knows where we'll end up. The Bible roots us in God's desire for what is right and wrong as the church. In verse 5, he says that they're unrestrained. They, uh, talking about wine, being betrayed by wine. Drunkards do not think right. They do not act right. And on top of all that, the one thing in a person that ought to tell him, stop drinking, is the part that gets intoxicated and no longer tells him to stop drinking. Wine betrays. The reference here to wine relates to a broader pattern among the Chaldeans that they don't ever know when to stop. Ever. 
and it is going to lead to their eventual downfall. Um, that's not, again, we've talked about this in a historical sense. This isn't found in Habakkuk, uh, but later on the Persians do come in and take them out. And part of it's because they just never knew when to stop, and the Persians are like, well, if we don't take them out, they're eventually going to take us. They are restlessly arrogant. It's bad enough that they are pr as proud as they are on top of it. They can't stop trying to get their own way. And he, he ends with, like death, he never has enough. He is insatiably greedy. The enemy will eventually undermine himself, but until then, they are the tool of severity being employed by God against his people. He sang, great is thy faithfulness. No, he didn't. What did we sing? How great thou art. I knew the word great was in there. Leave me alone. It's a very positive, looking forward song. That God is great. God is also severe. We don't generally sing about that. We do have some songs that talk about his justice and his righteousness and, and how sinful we are. We do. We have some of those songs. But those aren't the songs that we want to play on a gloomy day to cheer ourselves up. God is severe. This nation, this punishment that God is bringing about on the nation of Judah is God in his holiness and his righteousness and his justice doing what it takes to purify his people. What it should have taken is the book of Habakkuk. This warning should have been enough. God is always holy and right and just and he never succumbs to sin he never sins himself and he cannot tolerate sin especially sin in and among his own people God will do whatever it takes to purify his people perhaps I should write it this way God will do whatever it takes to purify me. Will you personalize it? In the case of the nation of Judah, God is raising up a bitter and cruel nation who will ruthlessly take them. It could have been prevented had they just repented. We know that God does that. That's that's the book of Jonah. Nineveh was a, a cruel and bitter place. And God says, I'm going to destroy them in what? 40 days? But they repented and God relented on that destruction for about a century. Surely, had Judah repented, God would have spared them too. But they didn't. God is merciful. He warns Judah. He warns the unsaved today. 
Today is the day of salvation. Right now, he extends his offer of salvation to believe on Jesus Christ and to be saved. If you're not sure that you are God's child today, don't leave today without making sure. I can show you from Scripture. Pastor Dan can show you from Scripture. There are a lot of people in here that can show you from Scripture how you can know. There is no guarantee of tomorrow. That's just the harsh reality. For God's children today, God wants your whole being. He wants your heart. He wants your actions. And he will do what it takes to purify you. Will you relinquish your sin and live for him today? Let's pray. Father, every soul in here today is a sinner. Not that we're necessarily worse than other people. That's just the wrong comparison. It's that we're not fully like Jesus. And your desire is that we would be fully like Jesus. Father, forgive us for our sin. Help us in our weakness to set aside that sin, to hate sin the way you hate it. Instead, to fix our heart on you. To love you more than we love anything else. To trust you that living, that your promise is true, that, that living for you is better than living a life of sin. That whatever we might give up in this world, that whatever we might forsake in this world, that you are more to us. Father, help us to live by faith. For the soul in here today that, that does believe but is struggling with sin, Lord, give them freedom. Break their desire, that chain of desire that keeps them so that they might live for you. For the one who's here today who perhaps is unsure of their salvation because sin is so rampant in their life. Lord, help them. Help them to seek counsel because they'll find it from God's people and through God's word. For someone who doesn't know you as their savior today, Lord, awaken them. Breathe new life into them so that they can turn from sin and live for you. We praise you and thank you for the way you use your word in our lives today. In Jesus' name.